Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Fertility Answers podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chapel, one of the Fertility Answers physicians down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And this podcast is put together just to facilitate conversations and communication between patients and their journeys and providers to help to give our patients and any patient along their journey a little perspective and point of view or two about how to think about things that they're going through, hopefully to bridge the things that we talk about as clinicians and the things that folks experience as, as patients. So today I'm excited to have Emma on the podcast with me. She's a friend and was also a, a patient as we kind of went through her and her husband's journey. There's a couple of things in Emma's story that I think are, are worth talking about. And she's always had a really positive and, and, and interesting perspective on, on life and, and on her experience as well that I think will help a lot of people as they kind of navigate these things. But in November, ASRM, or November 21, 2021, ASRM released their new updated guidelines and evaluation for Mullerian anomalies. This is when the uterus and the fallopian tubes and the vagina and the cervix, they develop in unusual ways. And that can result in a number of different phenotypes or a number of different presentations. Those aren't always the most easy to understand because they can form either two uteruses or two cervixes or a curtain in between a uterus and a cervix or a curtain in the middle of the uterine cavity uh, and any number of variations in between. And because there's so much variation in how these anomalies can present, they are difficult to classify and difficult to talk about and kind of picture in your head. ASRM did a great job of putting all this together in a fun and, and informative and interactive tool that's available to anyone. So I, I highly encourage anybody after listening to this, if you want to know more, check out ASRM's website and look for their new learning anomalies classification toolkit. It's full of really useful, great information for both providers and patients. But today we're going to talk a little bit about that because Emma came to me with a uterine septum. So to not give away too much of the story, not jump too far ahead, first of all, Emma, thanks for, thanks for jumping on with me today, the day after Thanksgiving. I appreciate your time. Yeah, um, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, let's talk just a little bit about how did you go about discovering that you had a uterine septum? Tell me, tell me where that came from. Um, so when I was pregnant with my first child, um, I was about six weeks along and I had some bleeding. So I uh, went in to get checked out, had my, my first ultrasound, um, and they discovered uh, what was either a septum or a um, biconiate uterus. Um, they could not tell just from the, the uh, basic ultrasound. So later on, we did a, you can, you're going to have to help me here, the saline ultrasound. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. In order to, to get a, a full picture of it and discovered that it was a septum. Perfect. And so a couple of couple of already points that I want to just kind of highlight in your story. Number one, pregnant and pregnant with your first child, which means that that pregnancy did result in a live birth. We think of so many things in medicine being a hard yes or a hard no. And when we are trained, we think of septums as just being very strongly associated with miscarriage. And they are. A uterine septum is associated with a miscarriage almost 80% of the time or up to 80% of the time, which is a lot. But you still can have a live birth with a septum. And in your case, you did. So that, that was your first pregnancy was a healthy, happy term delivery did have some, some bleeding and they said, Oh, that's weird. And then kind of moved on. I'm going to stop for a second and define uterine septum because we're going to be using that term a lot. 
and essentially this is really difficult to describe without waving my hands in the air and using finger puppets to show but essentially when the uterus and the cervix and the vagina and all those reproductive structures form they form in the body when you're in their first slash second trimester and what happens is there's two balls of cells that sit up there by the kidneys and the upper stomach and they form on either side of the body and then they migrate down to the pelvis and meet and fuse in the middle and each of them form half of the reproductive structures half the uterus half the cervix and half the vagina. And then they fuse together in the middle and form those structures. The, the line of cells where they fuse is supposed to go away. And if it doesn't, it results in a wall of tissue that can be anywhere from just encompassing the mid portion of the uterus or even in, down in the cervix or even down into the vagina. You can have a septum that goes from the top of the uterus all the way to the bottom of the vagina, most commonly just involving the uterus. So that's what a septum is. And because those cells are supposed to go away, they don't have great blood flow, they don't have good irrigation, and therefore it's difficult for an embryo to land and grow and implant and get the nutrients it needs. And that's why it leads to miscarriage so much. So with your first pregnancy, clearly the embryo did not land right on the septum, but rather in, a, in an area of the uterus that did have some good irrigation was able to get some good blood flow. It's difficult to differentiate a septum from something like a bicornuate where the two, the two balls of cells go down to the pelvis and they don't really meet, they don't really fuse, they have an impartial fusion. And so they kind of form two separate uteruses that are kind of attached at, at, a, at the lower point, but they are two separate entities. And so you can't really surgically correct a bicornuate uterus very well because it's not like there was ever good fusion to begin with. And there are others that were probably beyond the scope of us talking like a didelphus or uh, duplicated cervix kind of kind of picture there, but I don't necessarily want to go into a whole lot of detail. Those are a lot less common, and we'll probably tackle those in separate podcasts just for the uh, sake and respect of everybody's everybody's time. But today, for the purposes of septum, it's a line of of cells that was supposed to go away in, in development and didn't, and increases your risk for miscarriage up to eighty percent. And so after your first pregnancy, they 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 said, hey, look, this ultrasound looks kind of weird not sure what it might be. So they did a more in-depth ultrasound called a water ultrasound. You can also do a 3D ultrasound. You can also do an MRI. And all those things help you to distinguish whether or not it's a septum or a bicornuate to a certain degree. And then you got the definition, of, you got, excuse me, you got the diagnosis of uterine septum. What did you and your provider talk about as far as options at that point? So, okay, so I actually didn't get that, um, oh, that diagnosis so I, until I saw you. Oh, uh, okay. After so the, when they did the ultrasound at six weeks, what did they say? So they told me, um, so I followed up with my regular provider. Um, he said there was nothing to do while I was pregnant, nothing yeah. to do about it, that I could expect a regular pregnancy until the end. Uh, we may run into, um, or, sorry, the fetus may run out of room to grow. So I may have a small baby, may deliver early, or may have a C-section. Um, none of those things happened. I delivered at 40 weeks. Uh, healthy baby delivered vaginally. So okay. um, we had great success with that. After that pregnancy um, and live birth, I had a miscarriage uh, about nine months later. Um, and then I guess about six months after that, I had a second miscarriage. And that's when my OB sent me to you. To, okay. So that's that's always the tricky thing is if you if you see something around, if you see something, but everything is working okay, do you do anything about it? And I think that's one of the more difficult conversations for patients to have, especially with their, with their providers. By the time you come to see a fertility doc, 
something has gone wrong to warrant a more in-depth conversation. And if you find if you find on an ultrasound at six, seven weeks, say, hey, this uterus isn't exactly right, but then everything goes along according to plan. The question is, should we do anything about that? That's a really hard decision to make. There's not a right or wrong answer. I have seen patients just after that first live birth. I'll, I'll have patients that have a C-section early because the patient went into labor early and the patient is breached because the septum's kind of in the way and the baby can't flip, for example. And so they'll just have had that one pregnancy, no losses, and we'll see the se- and we'll talk about you know pros and cons of taking out the septum at that point. But for you and your story, there was kind of a, a thought process of, hey, everything was normal with that pregnancy. Let's just wait and see. Right. Uh, which is, that's not inappropriate. It's a, it's a tough call. Right? So, you know, that's always something to, as far as patients go to, to kind of be thinking about, you can advocate for yourself and say, okay, you found this, this is not exactly how it's supposed to be in the textbook. What does this mean if we do something about it? What does this mean if we don't do something about it? What are the risks of treating this versus just watching it? Um, because there is, there's plausible reasons to just watch and there's then there's also reasons to go after it and and do something about it and certainly after two losses it's reasonable to do something about so so we took a closer look with the water ultrasound and diagnosed that it was a septum and then the the treatment for a septum is to take it out with surgery uh, where we we go in with through what's called a hysteroscope with a camera through the cervix and inside the cavity where we're able to visualize the cervix and then basically just resect it back with either scissors or what we call cautery, uh, which is kind of like electricity. For you, can you kind of walk me through y'all, you and your husband's thought process as to what made you decide on moving forward with that procedure versus continuing to watch and wait? Or did y'all have any questions or thoughts about that that were worth noting? So because we had had a, a successful, healthy pregnancy, we were kind of, you know, wanted to sit back and, and see and not, not do anything invasive or unnecessary because mm-hmm. we had had a, a healthy child. Then after the second loss, we were, we kind of felt like, okay, this is not going the way that we want it to. Maybe, maybe it is time to get a second opinion or, or, or more specialized opinion mm-hmm. on, on what to do and, and how to proceed from there. So once we did the water ultrasound and, and you, I guess it was the, the length of the, the septum was pretty significant. And so uh, we went with your recommendation to go ahead and remove it in order to, to have another successful pregnancy. That's a good point. The diagnosis of septum can be can be difficult and can be subtle. Some patients will have a slight indentation at the top of the uterus where it just kind of dips in just a little bit. And that's honestly just fine. It still has good blood flow at the top of the uterus. It still has good irrigation, which is what I call it, just to kind of uh, make it make a little bit more sense in my brain that it just makes sense to call the, the, the blood flow irrigation, I guess, because I was raised up in the country in North Louisiana. But, <laughs> you know, I think the distinction at the what point we say, hey, this is not just a, sm- a slight indentation, which we call arcuate, but this is actually a septum. That line is around 15 millimeters. So if you can, you can measure how deep the septum dips into the cavity on those water ultrasounds and say, okay, it looks like it's going two to two and a half to three centimeters into the cavity. That's more consistent with a septum. Um, there's, other, there's other subtle things that you look at in the ultrasound. Uh, or MRI or, or whatever imaging is preferred by your provider. But, but that is one way we distinguish between, hey, this is just a slight variant of normal where it's just a little indentation versus, hey, this is likely to be pathologic and likely to be causing you problems. But yep, we went ahead and went forward with the surgery. And 
it was uh, successful in that we were able to get in and see the septum resected back and restore kind of what a, a normal uterine cavity in size would look like. Postoperatively, we always want to check after a surgical resection uh, with, a, with a follow-up, usually water ultrasound, to make sure that there's no scarring, which is a low risk, but not no risk. It's, it's less than 5%, depending on the study you read. And then from there, you talk about you know, where, where to go. There, and there's really there's three options. You can either just continue to try to get pregnant on your own. You can look at something like ovulation induction and inseminations, or you can look at IVF. A lot of times for folks that have had miscarriages with septums, I like to just tell them, just try on your own because it's not like there's issues getting pregnant. There's no real indication to push on the, the system to help you get, achieve a pregnancy. We just needed to make the system a little bit more amenable to implanting and sustaining a pregnancy. Uh, and certainly that was the case in, in y'all's case because you were you were and still are young and good egg reserve and sperm counts were normal and, and all those other things being equal, we just said, go try on your own. And that, that brings us to another point, another chapter in your story that I do want to pause and talk about because I think it's a, an important point. So you went off and tried on your own for a few months and then a few months later you were pregnant. Yeah, I think it was actually the month um, right after you released us to, to go try on our own. Um, I was pregnant. Okay. Uh, I was about uh, seven weeks along, I think, six or seven, had an yeah. ultrasound and um, realized that the um, the fetus was a little smaller than we expected it to be, followed up two weeks later and realized that it was not growing. And so that resulted in a miscarriage as well. Yeah. That was a bad day all around. And I think... Yeah, that was a... A, a big blow for us because it felt like, you know, we had done, done our due diligence. We had corrected what we could. And then we still fell victim to the, you know, the one in four odds of, of any pregnancy ending in a miscarriage. So it's not that we didn't, you know, follow the rules or do the right thing, but you know, you always have that risk with any pregnancy. I think that was, that's one of the important things that I wanted to highlights the wrong word, but I wanted to bring out in your story to make sure that folks are aware that you can do everything right, but, but you can't completely eliminate the risk for things like a miscarriage. And the, the numbers for septum say that if you have a septum, your risk for a miscarriage is 80%. But if you remove the septum, your chance for live birth is now 80%. And so it kind of flips it on its head. Instead of 80% miscarriage, 20% live birth, it becomes 80% live birth, 20% miscarriage once the septum is gone. And that being said, I think we forget that that 20% risk of miscarriage is still there. And so that, that was the case for you, but we move forward with the DNC and we were able to look at the genetics of that pregnancy and notice that it was what we call trisomy 15, which is an abnormal genetic uh, composition in that, in that pregnancy. So therefore that pregnancy was, was not able to continue and, and mother nature did what mother nature was supposed to do. But the important thing is, or the important point is twofold, is that one, these things happen, even like you said, even when you're doing all the right things. And two, having a pregnancy result in a miscarriage because of what we call aneuploidy or abnormal genetics really has no bearing on subsequent pregnancies. So that brings us to the next really important conversation, which is, okay, well, what do you do next? I have patients feel very differently about your options at this point, because this is, this would have been your third miscarriage. And right. at this point it is, it is significantly devastating. It's really hard on the heart. 
you you're not prepared at all for it because you you went and made an intervention to improve your outcomes and then here we are right back where we started right the, uh, and we were about a, a year at that point we were a year into trying to have another baby so we had we've been trying for a year we'd had you know three pregnancies but three losses on top of the surgery to correct so we were we were getting antsy yeah. um we we still wanted to wait and see you know try on our own try to have a successful pregnancy without intervention so yeah. we tried for a few more months um and i think you and i had kind of talked and, and set a a deadline for us if you will um yeah. if we weren't pregnant by november then we'd take another look at things you know it'd been almost a year at that point since our first our initial blood work and all of that. So we were going to recheck and kind of see where things were, you know, where we stood at the one year mark. Um, Mm. About two weeks into October, we had a positive pregnancy test. um, And so we were able to achieve a spontaneous pregnancy on our own. Yeah. I was thrilled because it is, it is a hard conversation that I'll have with patients because they'll, they'll have that miscarriage or, or, and like you said, it's been a year and, and, and folks start getting appropriately antsy. So some patients just want to jump right into inseminations and try and get pregnant faster. Or some patients will want to try IVF at this point even to look at doing genetic testing and try to minimize risk for, for miscarriage there by only transferring what we call euploid or genetically normal embryos. And so the conversation at this point is always, okay, how long do you want to try on your own? Do you want to try on your own? How do you know? And that's not that's not a right or wrong answer. And so, I, you know, I think for y'all, you knew exactly what you wanted. But for patients out there that have a similar story, be thinking about trying on your own versus IUI versus IVF with genetic testing. IUI may help you get pregnant a little bit faster uh, just because you're pushing on the system a little bit harder. It does increase the risk for twins. So that's something to keep in mind. And IVF, of course, you know, you're able to do genetic testing and potentially mitigate the risk for miscarriage, but it does come with extra interventions and extra cost. And, and there's pros and cons to each of those steps. I, I remember being very happy with y'all's choice of, of just trying a little bit longer on your own and very happy with the outcome, of course, of, of, a, successful, of a successful pregnancy subsequently. And so as, as much of an up and down journey as y'all's story was, I was certainly happy, to, happy for the successful outcome. Yeah. A successful pregnancy, um, delivered a, a second healthy baby girl, um, also on her due date. Um, and I don't know if I said this to you before, but it was actually, um, one year to the day after our third DNC, we were holding a healthy oh, baby man. girl in our arms. So that was, you know, I guess just a, a little God wink. Yeah. Have I it, think so. Have it be that same week. So that was pretty special. No, I don't think I did know that. That's very cool. That's very cool. I don't get, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't get as much follow-up after about 10 weeks and, and then, then folks go off to their, to their provider. So I appreciate that follow-up. So we're, um, we did, like you said, we had a, a long journey to get where we are. I think that if I went back to, to do it again, I would, I would probably follow the same course of action. I didn't want to over-treat. I think that's, that's some terminology that you used with us a good bit, not to over-treat mm-hmm. and to, to kind of sit back and let things happen as they would because we were, we were achieving pregnancy. We just needed help to stay pregnant. Yeah. In the end, it turned out what we didn't need help. We just needed, you know, we needed that septum out of the way, but we didn't need any medication or anything like that to stay pregnant. We just, those are, yeah, those are fun. Had to, you know, are, had to sit back a little bit. So 
And I think that's it. I mean, it's over treatment, but, but you're treating the head, you're treating the heart and you're treating the ovaries all at the same time. And you got to find a balance between those three. And, and that just results from ongoing conversations between the patient and the provider. And I, I appreciate you having this conversation with me today to, to hopefully help others frame how they want their story to go for if their yeah, story is similar to yours. Yeah. Well, um, any other closing thoughts or remarks, Emma? I don't think so. Cool. Well, I've, I've taken up, I've taken up your time. So I hope you <laughs> have a good Thanksgiving and, and get into the Christmas season uh, well and enjoy your family. And again, I really appreciate you. Uh, I, re- I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. If anybody has any other thoughts, concerns, questions, comments, or anything, you're always welcome to email us at podcast at fertilityanswers.com. But until next time, I'm Neil Chappell signing off and look forward to talking to you guys again very soon. Thanks, everyone.